Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ubooks and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Mark Banks from the University of Leicester about his new book, Creative Justice, Cultural Industries, Work and Inequality, which is published by Roman and Littlefield in 2017. Welcome to Ubooks and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Mark Banks from the University of Leicester about his new book, Creative Justice, Cultural Industries, Work and Inequality, uh, which is published by Roman and Littlefield. So welcome to the pod. Thanks, Dave. Um, it, it's great to have you on to talk about this book, uh, which I think is a, a really kind of important and very, very timely book. Um, and it'd be interesting, I think, to kick off with a sense of, of where this book has come from and where it sort of fits in um, to the work you've been doing more broadly on cultural creative industries. So I wonder if you could say a bit about the sort of the gestation of the book and where, where it fits into your broader academic agenda. Yeah, sure. Well, I've been thinking about it for a few years, um, maybe three or four years, thinking about wanting to write a book of this kind. Uh, and it took me a couple of years of mulling it over and then a couple of years of actually writing it. And I suppose in some ways it's a follow-up to a previous book I wrote called The Politics of Cultural Work, which came out about 10 years ago, which is really a kind of synthetic work, really, setting out what seemed to be, seemed to me, an emerging field around cultural industries and cultural work and people doing more research on work and employment in that kind of sector. And a few years on, um, it's becoming clear that many other people have become interested in this field as well. And the amount of studies and uh, research projects that were being undertaken around the cultural industries and around work and employment within them was expanding quite rapidly. And it seemed to me that we were generating all this kind of really interesting data uh, new arguments were coming into the field. And it's, it's been a really exciting time, I think, uh, the last decade or so in, in the kind of area that uh, I'm working in. So the idea for creative justice came out of, uh, I suppose, a bit of a taking stock of where we are in the field in terms of what we know around conditions of work and employment in culture. Uh, and I wanted to kind of, again, kind of um, think a bit about where we were in, in terms of the field as a whole and how people were thinking about um, issues around equality and equity and participation in the cultural industries, um, which would seem to be becoming more prominent and, and more controversial in many kinds of ways. And partly, I think, I was also motivated by uh, a desire to try and um, um, suggest a kind of a, a more normative vocabulary for what we were um writing about and thinking about in terms of the cultural sector. I wanted us to think a bit more about those kind of issues around justice and what all this kind of really rich and interesting data that people were generating uh, was leading to, where it was taking us politically uh, and what might uh, help us, if you like, um, activate or encourage or develop uh, a more of a kind of a justice agenda, I suppose, within this field of work, which was clearly um, riddled with many kinds of problems. What are we actually talking about then when when we kind of 
to use this idea of creative justice. What what I guess is the kind of um, the meaning of this term, and, um, and 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 where does it map onto that that landscape you've just outlined? Yeah, I think I'm still working it out to some <laughs> to some degree. Uh, it's a kind of um, it's, a, it's intended as a kind of a, a provocative term in many ways. It's a term that's um, co- a coin, I suppose, to try and get people to think about. Uh, most simply, I suppose, um, social justice issues in the court and industry. So it's a term really that's de- designed to invite um, speculation, really, on issues of uh, equality and equity in the cultural sector. So I'm really thinking of it as a provocation or an invitation to others, really, as much as a fully formed concept or argument. Um, but in the book, of course, I do try to develop some idea of what it might mean, or mean at least um, to me. So. In the book, I make a case for thinking about justice in terms of um, what I call giving and receiving, about giving consideration, respect and due to culture, but also about people receiving fair treatment, fair appraisal and um, just rewards in respect of culture. And the book kind of hangs on this dual hook uh, or riff on the nature of justice. So in terms of the giving aspect, the first kind of justice I try to give is, is to culture itself, where I say um, that it's important to pay respect and do justice to culture, which I would say involves trying to take it seriously on its own terms. Now, this is not in any kind of um, romanticist, idealist, perfectionist sense, uh, but in the sense of trying to make, um, make, trying to understand really what kind of entity culture actually is. And more specifically, what kinds of objects are being produced by people in the cultural industries? What are they? What is it that we're dealing with when we're dealing with cultural goods? Um, And secondly, in terms of giving, I try to think about how justice might be given to cultural work in itself, the the act, the task of producing cultural goods. So to me, this is something like um, considering its its fullest qualities, so giving giving it its due, considering holistically what kind of activity cultural work actually is. So, of course, this involves understanding it both as a source of pleasures and meanings and sources of pride and fulfilment and creative satisfaction and so on, all those things that are often positively attached to working in culture, Uh, but also thinking about those activities um, in terms of various external structures and pressures that bear down on the profit motive, the search for uh, awards and social statuses and so on. And also thinking about those qualities of cultural work that are often less than appealing and often deeply uh, problematic. Uh, and of course, we know what those are, alienation, exploitation, dispossession and so on. So doing justice to cultural work means thinking about if you like, both sides of it, the, the good and the bad, the things that people gain from it on a personal and social level, but also the kind of relations that people are kind of entered into when they're in the, in, into the, uh, in the capitalist uh, workplace. So that's the first half of the book is really about that giving of justice, giving, doing justice to cultural objects, but doing justice to cultural work. But in terms of the receiving um, part of the um, binary, if you like, the second half of the book really goes on to talk about how different institutions like uh, firms and schools and universities and so on um, allocate or distribute their resources in more or less fair or equal ways. And this is a more traditional concern with issues around distributive justice. So thinking about who gets the best kinds of cultural education, who is uh, gets the highest pay or indeed any kind of pay, uh, 
who gets the best or indeed any kind of cultural industry job. So this, of course, as you know, uh, in your own work is a topic very much of the moment. So I guess, you know, to summarise, I suppose, creative justice for me is about those issues of giving and receiving. How can we better understand and appreciate what the cultural industries are, what they produce, and how they produce, but also appreciating how people do or don't receive uh, their fair distribution of all the opportunities and rewards and statuses that cultural work um, can occasion. I mean, we'll, we'll sort of unpack them uh, a bit more, I think. And, and, and a good way to start is is that idea you mentioned about giving um, kind of value and doing justice to cultural objects. And, and you talk early on in, in the book, sort of in the introduction, and um, the first substantive chapter about the kind of sociological moment um, of thinking about cultural objects being insufficient or having given rise to a bit of a kind of a crisis around how we understand cultural value. Um, so I wonder if you could sort of talk through that sense of how you do justice to a cultural object um, and indeed kind of why it's necessary to do that justice. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one. And I think um, most, um, I suppose, conventional sociology has tends to shy away from that question a bit of doing justice to cultural objects and see it as quite a kind of problematic question. Uh, but I suppose what I suggest in the book that um, doing justice to cultural objects means, as I was saying earlier, uh, it means treating them on their own terms according, and, and evaluating them according to their own qualities um, and not just understanding them in terms of the ways in which they are subjectively valued or apprehended or consumed as, as they tend to be viewed in most kind of um, mainstream sociology. So we do need to think, of course, of objects as having that social provenance and our tastes for objects as being partly inherited and shaped by social background, shared interests and so on, as, you know, as Bourdieu and you know, others have argued. Um, but I also make the argument in the book that we need to recognise, I suppose, that that's not all there is to say about the value of cultural objects. And in the book, I make the case for a more qualified valuing of culture, I suppose, that takes into account both those Subject, subjective apprehensions and those patterns of taste as a source of value, but also considers what I call the objective qualities of cultural goods themselves and objective their meaning in the sense of pertaining to objects, uh, their actual properties, what kind of entities they actually are. So it's a, a kind of a realist take on um, the cultural object. And I think to me this has kind of um, some distinctive components. The first is thinking about the structures and properties of cultural objects themselves. And the example I use in the book is, um, you know, my own taste for you know, David Bowie's music, which is partly able to be explained as sociologically, of course. So someone of my age and ethnicity and class background and so on might well be more predisposed to like David Bowie's music, just like many thousands of others who share a similar kind of habitus to me. Um, but such taste, I suppose, is not able to be fully explained in those terms, simply because I think a lot of conventional sociological accounts are just not very good at making sense of, uh, of everything. So this includes to me the, um, like the objective structures of music, which I take to mean their uh, material, kind of sonic attributes, and their aesthetic codes, which are properties that partly exist outside of those kind of discourses we need to understand them. And nor, I think, can account for the four qualities of the experiences that take place when uh, you know, a, a David Bowie musical object encounters a listener like me, because these experiences uh, are not wholly given or 
sociological and predictable in a closed way, but also kind of partly emergent. And I suppose finally also, I think, nor can conventional sociology as it currently stands very well account for how musical taste is not just a social construction, not just defined by class background or habitus, but might well speak to some, if you like, trans-contextual or objective human needs, um, such as, you know, for care, for sociability, for recognition and so on, that might relate to various kinds of um, lack or want, uh, and they're not really only socially determined, but also, you could say, essential parts of our kind of human psyche. And I think cultural sociology, especially that's been inspired by Bourdieu, uh, great though it is and valuable though it is and how much we need it, just isn't able to get much of a handle on those other kinds of qualities. And if you read the work of you know, Janet Wolfe, her recent book, uh, The Aesthetics of Uncertainty, Georgina Bourne's work on BBC and ERCAM, as well, we, we get a similar kind of sense of trying to give a less reductive, soci- but still sociological account of the object uh, in its context. And you know, writers like Antoine Ennian have kind of also emphasised how um, objects have their own qualities and attributes that might be independent of the like, sociological gaze that's brought to them. And so valuation in those terms, I think, has been quite um, influential on the way I've approached valuation, or the theory of valuation in my own book. And I've been looking at how we need to not just think about the subjective apprehension of uh, cultural objects and how, if you like, they're inherited, shaped by habitus, partly kind of constructed within that vein, but also how they have dimensions of objective quality. That's partly about the kind of objects that they are in themselves. And I think that's what I mean by um, doing justice to cultural objects, taking those both those subjective and objective dimensions and looking at them more uh, more in, in a more holistic way, I suppose. The you know the kind of flip side to that, I guess, kind of holistic look um, at the object is looking at the producing or looking at, at work. And just as you know, you're, you're kind of theoretically engaged with the limitations of um, Budgesian sociology, you, you introduce a, a, another theoretical construction to help us think about production and, and, and work, which is this idea of moral economy. Um, and, you know, you, you talked about the kind of um, we're well served, I guess, in terms of thinking about cultural work. Um, but moral economy struck me as something that was, you know, um, quite a, a useful new or maybe old applied new framework so i wonder if you could say a bit about that about moral economy and doing justice to the practice of cultural work yeah i've always found it a really kind of stimulating concept i've been thinking about it a while um of course in social science i suppose uh, the kind of social science we're familiar with uh, writers like andrew sayer have been most prominent in thinking about developing that concept um so i've been inspired by that really, but the way I use it in my book and my other work really in its simplest form is to think about uh, how moral economy um, refers simply refers to the ways in which economic values and principles uh, combine with or more often tend to override uh, non-economic uh, values and interests. And in the context of cultural work, I, I use it really to think about the ways in which cultural work contains different and competing ethics and articulations of value. So firms, managers and artists and others invest their work with varied purposes, intentions and meanings, uh, which have a kind of an ethical or kind of moral dimension to them as much as they're about kind of instrumental gain or profit making or the conventional you know, uh, ambitions of capitalist work. 
Um, and I think moral economy is a way of getting into some of the more complex motivations and practices that people are engaged in when they're uh, embedded in you know, the context of cultural work production. And in the book, uh, I, I use the particular example of work, professional working music to try and reveal how cultural work is understandable as a kind of moral or ethical endeavour in, in a complex way. Um, driven by you know different norms and values and interests, and I use a particular understanding of the concept of practice, which is drawn from um, Alistair MacIntyre, uh, kind of neo-Aristotelian philosopher. MacIntyre's concept of practice helps really to show how work is driven by different internal and external goods and rewards. So, internal desires for community, creative expression, particular kinds of sociability and skills. And human flourishing, while at the same time it's, it's also directed and driven by what we call external desires or external goods, which are much more about kind of wealth, profit, money-making, but also things like social status uh, and esteem and so on. So a moral, economy, a moral economy approach, I think, is really good at getting at both those, if you like, internal, native, kind of intrinsic reasons why people love their creative work, which is, as we know, they do, as well as exposing uh, the kinds of sacrificial, precarious labour, inequalities and injustices and so on that mark out um, the cultural workplace. But it's also really good at getting a handle on those kind of external rewards and those, those external processes and drivers that make work often less than, uh, less than equal or less than just. So the case of music really is just used to illuminate a wider uh, point about cultural work and about moral economy. That, that doing justice to cultural work like, not only involves that empirical work of describing and detailing what work is, it also demands a certain amount of normative judgments about the qualities of the work. Is this work any good? Is this the kind of work we want to encourage? Is this, is this good or bad work in, in the terms that's used by others in, in the literature? Um, so thinking about moral economy helps me, at least, to think about contribution that cultural work might or might not be making to well-being, or ill-being, I suppose, in capitalist societies. I mean, you kind of hinted that the book is a sort of book of, of, of two halves almost, you know, and, and that sense of doing justice to objects and, and, and workers um, provides the, the starting point for a broader um, engagement with the social structure itself. And, and one of the ways you do this, um, building on and developing from the moral economy ideas, is around education and, and you pick up on this idea about talent both the social construction of talent but also the kind of the patterning of the education system in the way it deals with talent so so maybe maybe you could tell us a bit about how talent is socially constructed and at the same time the education system seems to kind of uh, reinforce the inequalities related to that social construction yeah i think you know talent is a really interesting concept is what I've you know, become more interested in as I've written the book and you know, I want to do more work on this, I think. Um, and you know, historically, this is where board using sociology and the sociology of education have also been really revealing um, because uh, a lot of the work that's gone on in, those, in that kind of field has, has really exposed some of the assumptions around, if you like, uh, talent that uh, I cr criticise in the book. But I suppose one of the first things to, I would say about talent is that, again, um, a bit like the cultural object, it does have some kind of objective basis. So we can say that most people are more or less capable of doing something um, and that there are certain kind of biological uh, 
um, prerequisites or conditions that allow you to have talent. So you need vocal cords so that you can sing. Maybe having kind of nimble fingers allows you to play those musical instruments more effectively, more easily, and so on. Um, but I think the idea that talent, talent is somehow entirely natural, as a lot of people seem to believe, is really kind of way off the mark. And actually, as I argue in the book, it's, this idea is really used to provide a certain amount of ideological cover for what is the more general process of the social sorting and patterning, as you say, and the unequal allocation of opportunities and rewards and jobs in culture. So talent is a kind of alibi that allows discrimination and inequality to occur. Uh, I think how that works really um, is um, in processes of recruitment, in processes of selection, let's say for uh, elite arts academies and so on, people are being excluded, not because they lack talent in an objective sense, not because they're incapable of doing things, but because they don't often convey like the right social appearance, the right dress, the right style, manner, linguistic competence and so on, all those kind of things that Bordeaux were called dispositions uh, that would invite people to be designated as talented. And it's been shown time and time again, I think, in the sociology of education, that when it comes to selection uh, for uh, the best jobs or elite academies and so on, the children of the elite get selected. And this is not on the basis in the cultural sector of any natural capacity for art that's intrinsic to the middle classes, uh, but because they've been socialised into presenting themselves as talented and because, because they do have all the benefits of those social advantages uh, that have been endowed to them through their upbringing. So um, access to training, best times of schooling, routine or more routine exposure to di diverse arts, uh, forms and cultural experiences, moneyed parents who can afford to pay for classes and trips and so on. This provides, um, if you like, the talented with all the resources to cultivate this kind of cosmopolitan or aesthetic, aesthetic disposition. It's highly rated by selectors. Um, and it's well known, of course, as the sociology of education work has told us time and time again, that selectors select in their own image. Um, so I think, as Bourdieu argued quite rightly a long time ago, back in the 70s, uh, talent really can better be understood as what he called uh, a negation of the social conditions um, of the production of cultivated dispositions. So really what it's saying is a mass that obscures the social origins of that which is commonly recognised as being uh, essential and natural. And how this kind of plays out in the cultural sector, most obviously, I suppose, is through things like um, black kids being turned away from music conservatoires because they lack the dispositions and occurrences that allow them to present themselves as talented. Or they play in less tutored, more informal styles that are less valued by elite academies. And a lot of the research that I was involved with around kind of jazz showed that uh, repeatedly. Um, we also see poor kids often unable to get over that hurdle of having to appear erudite and knowledgeable about art at interviews when they apply to fine art schools or as or being rejected on the basis that they're, quote, not engaged enough because they're just not able to routinely attend theatres, galleries, and so on, where financial uh, and cultural capital might be required, of course, to facilitate attendance. So all these people are much less likely to be designated as talented because they lack the material and social resources that allow them to cultivate both their objective talent, the things they can do, 
but also crucially their appearance as a talented student. So I think this is part of the problem around the idea of talent, that it's being used as a way of kind of sifting or filtering uh, and patterning the social field in arts education in particular in ways that are often kind of invisible or, 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 or um, certainly uh, m- much less kind of challenged than, than they might be. And I suppose the last thing I'll say about the idea of talent is overall I think it's a problematic concept. Um, but nobody, not even those, if you like, who are the victims of all that ideological work and that exclusion and that patterning uh, that goes on that, to identify them as being untalented, no, none of those people really dispute that talent exists, mostly in the form of some kind of innate, individualised kind of natural capacity that simply allowed, should be allowed to flourish. So I think that's something we need to think about a bit more on challenge as well. Not least, I think, to expose some of those um, ingrained ways in which talent is used to filter and sort people socially. Um, we need a kind of new kind of vocabulary around talent, actually, and, and all those kind of terms that relate to it around meritocracy as well, which are coming to the fore. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned meritocracy. How, how do we put this um, this discussion of talent into a kind of wider historical uh, context? I mean, the fifth chapter, which deals with the kind of history um, and questions uh, meritocracy, is, is the one I was really really drawn to. Um, and I guess, yeah, that, that kind of bigger question of like, how do we historicize that discussion of talent, that discussion of meritocracy is, is the key thing there. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I think that chapter is the one I like as well. It's, it's got a kind of, uh, you know, a broader kind of historical focus to it. I think. And, um, you know, there is, um, I think I would say a myth that um, during certainly in the UK, during the kind of post-war period, the period of, you know, social democracy, if you like, the, the second half of the 20th century, that the cultural industries were somehow more meritocratic, more open, uh, and people from ordinary backgrounds were able to kind of elevate themselves of the career ladder within them much more kind of easily. And to some extent, what I show in that chapter is that's kind of true, but it's also something that's um, uh, debatable in a sense because not everybody, and certainly not women or ethnic minorities, were able to elevate themselves in quite the same way uh, as people from working class backgrounds. Uh, and also, overall, a lot of the kind of top jobs in culture have always been colonised by kind of middle class uh, constituencies. So that chapter really kind of um, takes, takes people through, I suppose, the late 20th century in Britain and brings it up to the kind of um, contemporary debate around access to arts and cultural work. So I suppose in the UK, it begins by looking at how in the post-war period uh, there were employment gains and a more diverse en- entry, I suppose, into cultural industry occupations. And this is underwritten by you know, capitalist growth, but also by some significant transformations in systems of education and welfare. So after the 1944 Butler Education Act, we, we see that we have a new national system of free secondary education up to the age of 15, later 16. And then by the early 60s, a greater number of people from working and lower middle class backgrounds are finding their way into further and higher education, starting to populate universities. And there's a great expansion, as you know, in higher education during the 60s and 70s. And many of the universities at the time were, of course, providing new courses in uh, the fine and applied arts, um, which were ena- enabling people to enter those kind of expanding professions, which were being if you might, created 
in the moment of their undertaking. So the music industry, um, broadcasting, uh, television, journalism, so they were hugely expanding. So this is kind of uh, underwritten the idea that, um, if you like, 40 or 50 years ago, the cultural field was much more kind of open, much more diverse, and people were able to kind of elevate, elevate themselves through the field on the basis of kind of talent and merit and so on. Um, what that kind of obscures, of course, is that um, at the time, there were certain people who weren't able to do that. So throughout what is often called like the long boom or the kind of golden age of post-war capitalism, women remained uh, deeply excluded from most kind of cultural professions other than in kind of like supplementary or support or administrative roles. We know that uh, black and ethnic minority people made very little inroads into the cultural ministries until uh, maybe the kind of 1980s. Um, but I think the picture is also kind of cloudy as well. Uh, in that there's actually very little data about recruitment, employment, or patterns of progression within the cultural industries between about 1950 and you know, 2000. And so the idea that's commonly held that working class people somehow took over the arts in the post-war period, and there was a great equalisation, a great kind of meritocratic kind of uh, drive, isn't really able to be borne out by the data, because we don't really have that much data on the one hand. But also, at the same time, the argument I make in the book is that the apparent visibility of the rise of a lot of kind of working class talent, if you think of all those pop stars and film stars in the 60s and 70s, all from working class backgrounds, by, uh, by and large, all of whom went to art schools. They're, if you like, the kind of the front story or the cover story that masks, to me, a more complex narrative underneath, which is about um, maybe the establishment of kind of middle class privilege within the arts and culture, cultural sector as they expanded. So the story is actually kind of quite complex. And the, 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 today's um, uh, narrative, um, you know, you are involved in, I'm involved in, a lot of people are writing about at the moment, uh, is telling us that um, the cultural interests are profoundly um, unequal, certain sections of society are really disadvantaged in respect of them. And somehow this has changed. And to, to some degree that's kind of true, but I also make the point in the book that actually historically there are certain and members of society who have always been excluded from the cultural industries. And the patterns of participation that have um, unfolded over 50 years are actually kind of quite uh, quite complex, but also um, demonstrate as much continuity uh, 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 as change, I think, over time. The, the book kind of comes to a close with, um, I, I guess, a set of principles, um, some of which are a kind of call to arms. And it'd be interesting, I think, to finish our discussion on them. But before we do, um, there's the kind of sticky matter of, of pay and money. Um, and obviously, you know, one of the things that's really important in this, this area is money, you know, the kind of possibility of really big rewards, you know, of kind of superstar um, earnings or wages. But then the reality of low pay, insecurity, precariousness, which you've kind of um, touched on and, and talked about a little bit already. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of talk through the idea of sort of the labour process of creative work and the problem of, of artists getting paid, because I, I think that's quite a nice, um, as many other bits of the book do actually, intersection of practical questions about money and then more kind of broader theoretical questions about production processes and labour processes. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, it's, a, you know, very much a topic at the moment, isn't it? Um, yeah, we, yeah we, I kind of guess a lot of um, researchers now uh, reinforce what was, I suppose has always been known in a way that you know, 
working in art is paid work and the vast majority of people who work in arts and culture uh, do so on low or subsistence wages, sometimes no wages at all. Uh, free labour, of course, is a big problem in the cultural economy. And that to survive in the cultural sector, usually you need some kind of second job. Most often that's teaching or administration. But actually, you might also be relying on families, partners, spouses, and so on to, to prop up your participation in the, the cultural sector. Um, and the idea that people could independently make, if you like, a, even the average wage or a decent living beyond that in arts is um, really a, a, something that's restricted to a minority of participants, as we know. Um, and this is kind of something perhaps we've always known, but equally uh, it's something that's being put forward now more urgently as a political question. I think that, you know, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, one of the interesting questions for me is arguments as to why low pay exists. Um, and there, you know, there are various um, reasons that have been put forward for it, and I kind of um, go over them a little bit, I suppose, in the book. And if you're a cultural economist, um, there are various arguments that you might want to suggest as to why there is low pay in the arts, and that often relates to arguments about oversupply, as it's called. So there are too many arts graduates chasing, chasing too few jobs, which is why pay is low. Um, there's an argument about speciality or specialism and training. So artists are trained in a sense, but they don't have to be participate in the artistic economy. And they certainly don't need to be especially trained as other kinds of professionals like engineers and surgeons and so on. So if you like, there's a kind of a low barrier of professional entry, which encourages people to enter the market, which depresses wages. Um, another reason, I suppose, why pay is regarded to be low, if you're thinking it from an economist perspective, is, is, is a kind of high social prestige that's attached to being an artist, but at the same time, it's tied to the idea that artists are, are producing peripheral, kind of marginal or luxury goods. Um, compared to neurosurgeons or pilots or something, the artist is often seen to be a kind of like a luxury or an expendable contributor to the economy. And this is another justification of why pay is low. Uh, and I suppose the most familiar reason why we think um, the pay is low, or one that crops up in the literature time and time again, uh, is that artists are, are low paid because they're prepared to be so. And that's tied to all these arguments around kind of sacrificial labour, working for love, working for passion, and deriving the various kinds of, if you like, psychic income, as a cultural economist like David Crosby would call it. Um, but one of the points I make in the book, I suppose, is that while these arguments are kind of more or less true in different ways, what they don't really point to is the issue of inequality. And one of the reasons why artistic pay tends to be low for the majority is to do with inequality. It's to do with inflationary markets for, if you like, the top talent. It's to do with an uneven distribution of um, incomes and rewards in arts and cultural um, organisations. Steepening pay pyramids, if you like, uh, whereby you know the 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 very, if you like, the the very best talent or the very top talent tend to be over rewarded at the expense of the majority and you know a real kind of a real kind of um, growth in inequality between rank and file pay and reward and managerial and executive pay that's gone on over the last 10 or 20 years so the issue of artist pay is not just about you know, those conventional cultural economist arguments it's actually to do with inequality and I think that's something that um, you know certainly in critical social science people are kind of making uh, us aware of and campaigning for 
uh, tapping in against rather and pro providing kind of you know, various kinds of illuminating research in respect of. But it isn't something that's still part of the mainstream debate, I think, around pay in the artistic sector. So what do we do? Um, you know, the, the kind of classic question um, that comes from these critical moments is, is you know, what, what do we do about this uh, this stuff, these inequalities of, of pay rates, you know, these assumptions about entry into um, conservatoires or art schools, you know, these uh, questions about how we value objects. And you set out um, five principles that cluster around, I think, three three areas about objects, participation and harms um, in the conclusion as a as a sort of manifesto or, or a way forward. So c can you take me through objects, participation and harms as the, the principles of creative justice? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the what do we do question, the, the, the perennial question. I suppose uh, the first thing I'll say there is that people are already doing a lot and, you know, in tandem or in parallel with a, a huge amount of academic literature that's sprung up around cultural work and cultural industries in the last couple of decades. Of course, what we're also seeing is a huge amount of kind of political organising, work on, uh, in unions and so on. Uh, people at the coalface of cultural production are organising and agitating for various kinds of justices um, as, as they see them. So there's a lot going on. And I think, the, the, if you like, the book ends with these kind of three, if you like, principles, which are, are really inspired or grow out of things that I see happening out there already. So they're not entirely abstract or conjured out of thin air, but I want to do is try and link them to things that I see concre concretely going on. But as you say, you know, I kind of suggest these three um, schematic, kind of provisional um, concepts, which I really, like I was saying at the start of our discussion, I really see them as being kind of like tools to think with or kind of provocations or provisional ideas. Um, as a way of kind of taking forward the idea of um, developing a normative vocabulary around justice and cultural work. But just to think about them in turn a little bit, the first concept uh, I link back to what we were talking about earlier, doing justice to objects, doing justice to work. So the first concept I, uh, I suggest is this idea of objective respect. And I define that in the book in the following way. Um, objective respect is... Um, to respect cultural objects and practices by evaluating them in terms of their own objective qualities as well as their subjective apprehension value. So um, respecting culture in this sense means taking seriously the objects of culture, the texts, the goods, symbols and signs that people produce as being meaningful phenomena with their own objective as well as subjectively experienced properties. So in the way I earlier described, it's about thinking holistically about objects what they're comprised of, what their properties are, but also how they um, move and mediate in the social field. Um, so that's the first sense of kind of objective respect, thinking about doing justice to the object. Um, but doing justice to cultural work, as I say, means respecting the internal goods and qualities of work as an ethical practice, as I was talking about earlier, but without discounting those external structures and pressures that tend to make work sometimes less than appealing and often deeply uh, unfair and just. So objective respect really is just about respecting objects and respecting work. Um, the second concept um, I um, suggest is this idea of parity of participation. And this isn't my concept, this is one I've taken from um, uh, Nancy Fraser. And Nancy Fraser coined this idea of parity of participation and she defines it 
um, in her work as, uh, as social arrangements that permit all uh, adult members of society to interact with one another as peers. So it's really intended as a way of bringing different kinds of justice under a common measure, uh, which is the degree to which people are able to engage and interact in different spheres of activity as equals, as peers. So it's very much a kind of like a, a recognition of the peer status of people um, and treating them as kind of human beings of you know equivalent kind of moral worth. So I've kind of stolen a bit of Nancy Fraser's idea there on parity of participation, but tried to adapt it to the specificity of the cultural sector. So I kind of suggest that parity of participation really means in the cultural sector that we have to do three things. The first of those is uh, trying to develop social arrangements that allow uh, for the maximum range of people to enter and participate in cultural work, and that's what they want to do, uh, in ways in which they will be fairly treated and justly paid and rewarded for their efforts relative to their peers. So it's about, about kind of a fair and just economic participation. Um, the second thing I think we should be doing is ensuring that people are not prevented from entering cultural work on the grounds of any unfair cultural discrimination or prejudice, and that people have equal opportunities to participate and develop in cultural work once they become engaged or employed. So that, that's an argument really about kind of cultural recognition and respect. And thirdly, I think, in terms of parity of participation, what we should be looking to do is to try and develop the cultural industries as, as democratic spaces or democratic arenas where minority and marginal groups can advance their own fair representation and secure uh, a fairer share, if you like, of the public communicative, communicative space. Uh, one of the kind of underpinnings, if you like, of creative justice is to do with enabling people to participate in culture as a way of engaging in a democratic polity. It's a political question. <clears throat> so that's the second concept. And the final concept, as you say, is this idea of um, what I call reduction of harms. Um, and I kind of define that as uh, reducing the physical and psychological harms and injuries inflicted by cultural work based on an assessment of objective conditions and uh, their effects on human beings. Um, and harm is a kind of slightly elusive concept in a way, but I think of it as, or we can think of it, I suppose, as a condition of physical or psychological ill-being or hurt induced, in this case, uh, by the practice of cultural work. So these might be self-induced or they might be other-induced. It might include exploitation, self-exploitation, things like overworking and stress, intimidation, bullying, domination, aggression, violence, and so on. These are some of the harms we can locate in cultural work, and they stem from various kinds of class, gender, or uh, race-based discrimination and misrecognition. Others might be more personal, indiscriminate, or also derived from some kind of institutional carelessness or indifference. Wherever they come from, though, I think the idea of reduction of harms is, is, a, is an interesting, maybe an important principle, because its activation, activation does suggest the possibility of a, of a, a positive and complementary effect coming into, uh, into force, which is an increase in human well-being through flourishing. So flourishing does consist in being able to expand or develop your human powers, your faculties and capacities, which do derive from being able to live well and work well in environments that are safe and sustaining and supportive. So they're kind of, uh, the reduction of harms and an increasing flourishing, of course, are kind of quite closely related. And I think that that's the third principle, I suggest, as being one that we might want to consider uh, uh, thinking about supporting 
uh, developing as we as we move forward um, with uh, uh, a politics of uh, cultural industries and cultural work. And is is that moving forward the kind of the next thing for you? Is that going to be where you're going work wise, or have you got you know sort of a, a different set of, of, of projects um, and a different set of questions that you want to engage with, um, maybe with the next book or uh, the next set of papers or the next project? Yeah, well, I don't know about the next book. I think I'm <laughs> probably, probably good for a book every decade or so. But um, certainly thinking, yeah, having, I suppose, suggested uh, a set of concepts or, or a vocabulary um, kind that I have suggested, then I suppose it's incumbent on me to try and think about where that, how that might be developed. Um, I suppose the broader point uh, there, though, is not so much the efficacy or the sales of those concepts in particular. It's more about encouraging, I, I suppose, a more kind of avowedly normative approach to cultural industries, research and cultural work. You know, I'm kind of interested in people kind of um, coming up with um, their own take on creative justice, I suppose, or the idea of justice in the cultural industries. You know, I think we're at that moment where uh, politically uh, there's a great deal of kind of an, an, uh, energy uh, willingness, kind of enthusiasm to, to 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 challenge some of the kind of structures that have been embedded over 50 years in what we call the cultural creative industries. So I suppose what I'm looking to do is how I would contribute to that kind of um, process of you know, further politicising and, and uh, further making normative various kinds of ways the cultural sector. Um, so that's a kind of a, a general outcome from the book, I suppose, that I'll be thinking about. Um, um, what I also have been doing recently is writing a little bit about the history of um, the idea of the creative city and um, cultural interest discourse. I've uh, just written an article with Justin O'Connor, it's coming out in the European Journal of Cultural Studies in the autumn, which is partly about historicising uh, our understanding of the, the, the idea of creative cities, uh, which has been very pervasive, as you know, over the last few decades as well. So I suppose what's coming out of that is that I'm becoming much more interested in kind of historical uh, evaluations of the cultural industries and, and cultural work discourse and practice. That's something that you know I'd quite like to develop further in the future. Uh, and apart from that, I'm uh, trying to um, write a little bit, uh, a little bit more about music, dance, um, art schools, and those things that I've been writing about um, most recently with uh, others. You know, such as Kate Oakley and other collaborators as well. And this is part of the, the Cameo Centre at Leicester? Yeah, um, we've got a new research institute which uh, I'm part of, which is called Cameo, which uh, stands for Cultural and Media Economies. And it's a, um, a group of people drawn from media, communication, sociology, from um, uh, critical management elements in the School of Business, from English, from geography. We're trying to draw widely from across the uh, the disciplines available um, to create a, a research institute that's very much focused around issues of social justice and participation and sustainability in cultural media and creative economies. And that's not only focusing on the kind of work that I'm interested in, but it's also kind of taking a much more kind of broader uh, sweep across the cultural field. Think about all kinds of different forms of cultural production and consumption and how they too might be linked to a kind of a social justice uh, and sustainability in general. Uh, so that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, one of the things I'll be doing is working with 
my colleagues to try and get that uh, further off the ground. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Mark Banks about creative justice, cultural industries, work, and inequality.